Pastor Jared and Melissa are in Carmel celebrating their, I think it's their 15th wedding anniversary. So I was asked to come in and fill in for him. And based on the uh, passage that he wanted me to preach on, to continue on with the book of Ephesians, uh, it's, and we're going to be talking about this a little bit, it is almost the parentheses in Paul's thought where he starts saying something and then he kind of digresses and starts talking about something else. So I, I guess it, it, it sounds like a good thing for a, a substitute to come in and, and preach on. Let's read today's scripture. We're in the third chapter of Ephesians and we're going to be reading... Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. If you would stand for the reading of God's word. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for... This word, we thank you for the fact that we are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promises. Lord, we give this to you, and may you bless the reading of your word. In Jesus' name. I'm going to ask you to remain standing for a second. Most of you are standing next to a spouse, children, a friend, people you know. And we had a greeting time earlier today. But I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to turn to one of the people, either next to you or in front of you or behind you, and give that person a hug. Okay, okay, that's enough. 
That's enough. Let's talk about hugs. Barb's walking around hugging everybody. Barb, sit down, please. <laughs> Let's talk about hugs for a second. I, for those of you who know me, by nature, I am not a hugger. That I've actually said to people, so let me give you a, I'm not a hugger. But I've come to realize hugs are actually a good thing. I mean, watching all you, it's pretty cool. People were going, oh, ooh, ah, and they're hugging each other. I actually saw a couple of people kiss each other. Now, hopefully you're married. But that's a different sermon for a different time. But over the course of time, while I am not a hugger, I realize that hugging, that's a good thing. Let's talk about hugs a little bit. What does a hug do? When you hug someone, what does a hug do? Well, first of all, it honors the recipient. The person you're hugging is honored by that. It shows you care. It shows you're trying to comfort them. It's a good thing. Next, what does a hug do? It unites the participants, the two people that are hugging, or in the case of, you know, if you're into that, kind of a group hug thing. It unites all the people involved. And thirdly, if done by Christians, it glorifies God. Because it shows we care for each other. It shows, in some cases, that we even love each other. Today, we're going to see how Paul gives what I call a parenthetical hug, a parenthesis, a parenthetical hug, to his recipients, the Ephesians. Now, in prior sermons that you've heard on this series, um, we heard Paul talk about the Gentiles' former lives, how they were dead in their trespasses and sins, how they were following the, the prince of the power of the air. They were children of wrath, Sons of disobedience. But then, in the same breath in earlier chapters, we heard Paul begin rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were now united to God through Christ by his grace. And as he rejoices, he begins to launch into what will eventually be a prayer of thanks. But suddenly he stops. He stops. As he wants to start this prayer, he says, For this reason, I, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he digresses to something else. 
And if you read down 13 verses to chapter 14, he picks it up again. So his thought would be, his thought on this prayer would start out, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Then verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees before the Father. And he kicks into this prayer. What happens in those verses uh, 2 through 13 in between that? He digresses. He starts talking about something else. And that's what I want to focus on today. Paul centers his digression on what he calls the mystery of Christ. The mystery of Christ. (coughs) And like we spoke of earlier, this is a parenthetical hug. And Paul's hug honors the recipient. And we'll see that in Ephesians Ephesians and some other places. It unites the participants and it glorifies God. Let's take a look at this structure of this digression, of this parenthetical hug that Paul gives. First, the mystery of Christ honors the recipients and it does so in three ways. First of all, they're honored through Paul's stewardship. Verses 1 through 2. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, what? For you. He's honoring them. The stewardship honored these recipients. They were also honored through Paul's calling. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all saints, this grace was given, what? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul was called for a specific purpose. He was called and given the grace by God specifically to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. They were honored through Paul's calling. And these unsearchable riches he's talking about, are William Barclay calls them a wealth, the limit of which no man could ever find. I wrote in my Bible regarding this, and this was years ago, if I can read my writing. These unsearchable riches, these are the riches that cannot be searched for because they only existed in the heart of God. They had to be revealed by him. They could never have been known to exist by us, and therefore they could never have been searched for. These unsearchable riches of Christ that he was called to preach to the Gentiles are beyond even our imagination. Unbelievable. Unsearchable. And that's what Christ reveals to us and has revealed to these Gentiles.
The mystery of Christ honored the recipients. They were also honored through Paul's suffering. Verse 13, right at the end. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He's in prison because of his, of his uh, preaching. He's in prison because he's pushing Christ. He's evangelizing. That's why he's there. So I ask you not to lose heart. Don't lose heart over the fact that I'm suffering for Christ because that suffering is your glory. When you look that word up, glory in the Greek, another definition of it is honor. It's for your honor that I'm in prison. It's for your honor that I'm, being, that I'm suffering. The stewardship that he was given. The stewardship in verses 1 and 2. The Greek word for that is oikonomia. It's where we get our word economy. Those of of you who in high school maybe, and probably not a lot of guys, uh, but maybe a lot of, of the ladies here, you took a class called home economics. Another word for that would be home management. The stewardship has to do with managing. Paul was given the grace of God to manage the evangelism and the discipleship of the Gentiles. What an honor for them that that would happen. He was divinely commissioned to manage God's grace on their behalf. See, God set it up so that these new Christians, these Gentiles, would not just be pushed into a Christian pool and left on their own to figure out how to swim. He brought Paul into their lives to teach them to evangelize them, to disciple them, to teach them how they should live and how they should think. Bethany's pastoral team has been given that same call, that same stewardship to disciple, to teach, and to pray for all of you. And that's for your honor. That's for your glory. That's for your good. And I can tell you that the pastoral team here does that constantly. Praying for the good of your people. Then, secondly, the mystery of Christ not only honors the recipients, but it unites the participants, just as a hug did. We're now united, he says, as fellow heirs. 
The mystery of, is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Verse 6. They're fellow heirs. Look what else the Bible says about this. In Ephesians 2, 2.12, Paul had reminded them, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Once you were separated from Christ. But now you're a fellow heir. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to the promise. In Galatians 4, 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is a big deal to them. And it should be a big deal to us. We are heirs. Where before... We were separated from God. Not only heirs, but Paul says, in Christ they were now also united as members of the same body. Verse 6 still. He reminded them, remember that you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It used to be the Jews who knew God. But now, through Paul's evangelism, through Paul's mission, the Gentiles are being brought into the family of God. And he's telling them that. He's reminding them, reminding them of that. Ephesians 2, 14 and 15. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one, that he might create in himself One new man in place of the two. One new man in place of the two. The Jews and the Gentiles are now one in Christ. And then as far as the uniting the participants, we see that in Christ... They were now united as partakers of the promise. Ephesians uh, 3.6 again. Ephesians 2.1.12 again. Remember that you were strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not by your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then in 2 Corinthians, it talks about the promises again. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who established, establishes with us, with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and who has also put his seal on us, and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. They're united. And he, he talks about this parenthetical hug 
how they're honored, and now how they're united into one man, one body. And then thirdly, this hug, this mystery of Christ glorifies God. First of all, the mystery was revealed through divine revelation. Assuming you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. In Ephesians 1, 7 through 10, which that long run-on sentence from verse 3 to verse 14. But this he talks about the insight that making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. This gives glory to God. He has a plan that he put these these Gentiles and included them in with the Jews. That through Christ's suffering and death, burial and resurrection, they're now all together. They're now all one family. They're heirs. They're partakers of the promise. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, just as we are. The mystery was also revealed through God's perfect timing, where he says, Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, that has now been revealed. Perfect timing. We read in the Old Testament, we knew the Messiah was coming. The Jews knew there was a Messiah coming. They just didn't know when. They didn't know who. But now, New Testament wise, here he is. Perfect timing. At the full there's a number of places in Scripture where where God talks about in the fullness of time, meaning at the right time Christ appeared. I mean, think about even even our calendar. There's a BC and there's an AD. It kind of has a separation with two sides somewhere in the middle. BC stands for before Christ. AD is translated after death. It was a specific point in time that was perfectly orchestrated that was perfectly established at the fullness of time Christ came and changed everything everything and from then on we all have access to God through the blood of Christ and we're going to be ce- we're going to be celebrating that in just a little while here. So there's perfect timing. 
I'm not going to read this whole scripture, but in Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8, there was a song back in the 60s called, you know, for everything, turn, turn, turn. You've heard that. Maybe. It came from Ecclesiastes. I just threw this up here just so you can see it. It's in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 3. A time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, a time to heal. And on and on and on. There are specific times for things to happen. God ordains specific times. And at the fullness of time, everything in the universe changed when Christ came. There was a time for that to happen, and it happened. And now he's coming back again someday. Amen. This mystery of Christ also glorifies God in that it revealed to God's that it was revealed to God's chosen messengers. Paul writes, when you read this in verse five, when you read this you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, but it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. In other words, Before this appointed time, it wasn't revealed. They knew a Messiah was coming. But then in the New Testament times, it was revealed to the apostles. And then in Hebrews, a cross-reference, long ago and many times and in many ways, meaning the Old Testament, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. We finally got the real story from the real guy. Before it was real. But the prophets would tell us sometime in the future it's coming. And then when Christ came, he told us. We've got it still right here in Scripture. So God is glorified because His timing is perfect and He's he's used His perfect messengers to tell it. And lastly... The mystery of Christ glorifies God in that it was revealed is it revealed by God himself. Paul writes, when you read this in verse 5, you'll perceive my insight in the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it, how, as it now has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. God himself gave that message to his messengers to be passed on at the perfect time. And ultimately, the mystery of Christ was revealed for God's perfect 
purpose. Paul says that this grace was given to him so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. His perfect purpose. The Jews were the first to hear. Christ was a Jew. The Jewish nation was formed just specifically for the purpose that God wanted for the world. God didn't look down and go, okay, who can I, who, who can I use to be a beacon for me to the world? Let's see. Uh, not the Philistines. No, not those guys. Um, and he didn't say, oh, the Jews. I'll use the Jews. He didn't do that either. He said, there's a man. Abraham. And out of Abraham, I will form a nation. See, the Jews weren't there and God chose them. God chose a group, a man and a group of his descendants to be the Jewish nation. He created that. And their job was to go throughout the world, remember he said, and be, you know, be fruitful and multiply. In other words, fill the world. Fill the world. So that throughout redemptive history, people will see how great I am. I will be glorified in all the world through the Jewish people. And then at the fullness of time, at a particular point in time, he said, okay, I'm going to move past the Jews. I'm going to include the Gentiles. And he pulled them in through the blood of Christ. And formed what we call the church. And the church is made up of believers. Whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, that's what the church is made up of. And he says this about the church, so that through the church, he did all this, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. He not only wants people to know He's talking about angels. Remember scripture where they said, the angels look down and go, what's so special about them? He wants angels to know. He wants demons to know. He wants every spiritual thing, every living thing, excuse me, sorry, it's so great stuff, I'm just joking on it. He wants everything, everybody, every creature to know that he is God and to glorify him.
This mystery of Christ was revealed for God's perfect purpose. And this is something that brings us full circle right back to week one of this series where we talked about what we are in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The idea being implanted here through this digression that Paul makes is what we have in Christ. <clears throat> we have the grace of God. We have His love. We're given His wisdom. We are beneficiaries of his desire to be in his presence for all eternity. This is an inculcation of what we saw in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. How we were blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. How we're to be holy and blameless before him. It's done through Christ. How we're adopted as sons and daughters and therefore heirs, joint heirs with Christ. How we've been redeemed. How we've been forgiven according to His grace. How His plan is and always has been to unite all things in Christ. How we are heirs to unspeakable riches promised with a divine guarantee that we will receive that. A guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Through these first three chapters of Ephesians, we've seen who we are in Christ. We see what we were prior and we see who we are now. We've gone from death to life in these first three chapters. So what are we going to see going forward, chapters 4 through 6? Well, one answer to the question is this. Since I know who I am in Christ now, how am I supposed to live being in Christ? That's what the book of Ephesians does. This is who you are in Christ now. Knowing that, this is how you live in Christ. And that's going to start in chapter 4 next week. How should I live now that I realize that I'm a child of God, a joint heir 
partaker of the promise that I've been given every spiritual blessing. It's amazing. When you think of the word hug, I want you to think of this passage. Because just the same way when you hug someone, you honor them, you're united with them, and you glorify God, so were the Gentiles in Paul's time who were honored and united and became part of God's family. As we prepare to take communion here this morning, I want to use, talk about the same aspect. Because in communion, we're honoring. We're honoring, God is honoring us. He's allowing us To sup with him, if I can use a old term word. He's honoring us. He's allowing us to be with him. He's in our presence. When we take communion, we're uniting with him in a spiritual sense, but we're also uniting with each other. We're eating and drinking with Christ. And we're eating and drinking with each other. There's a unity there in communion. And then above all, when we take communion, because we're told, we're commanded to to do this until he returns, do it in remembrance of him, we are glorifying God. We're honoring each other. We're honoring him. We're uniting with each other. We're uniting with him. We're glorifying him through communion. So if the men will come up, we'll partake of communion. And God bless you.